You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast on the 5x5 Network. You're listening to episode 284, and I'm your host, Brittany Martin. Greetings again from Abstractions, a a multidisciplinary conference based in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Today, I am joined by Christine, who is a Ruby engineer, open source maintainer, and theater director. As an engineer at Fractured Atlas, she builds tools to help artists with the business side of their art, which is fundraising, selling tickets, finding studio performance space, so definitely someone that I relate to. Outside of work, Christine maintains open source software to support the work of an NYC immigrant rights organization called New Sanctuary Coalition, and is an organizer for Railsbridge, New York. She is driven and inspired by the potential of technology to enable small organizations with limited resources to maximize their impact. Welcome to the show, Christine. Thank you so much, Brittany. Absolutely. Well, Christine, we would love to hear your developer origin story. Awesome. Um, So as my bio hints at, I'm a theater director, and that's what I kind of went to school for. Uh, So I was working in admin and reception positions uh, for a couple years out of school, and I had an idea for an iPhone app. Uh, there was like kind of a list app where you could save suggestions from for your from your friends, and uh, so I started uh, just trying to build that. Um, there were a couple like Stanford. I think Stanford like records their like iOS 101 or did for a period of time. So I kind of used that as a resource. Uh, my dad is also an engineer, so I asked him some questions uh, to try to figure it out, and uh, it took about eight months. Um, but after a certain point, I think probably after like month four, I was like, I've sunk so much time into this. So clearly I have to get it finished. Uh, but eventually I, I kind of got it into the app store and I was really excited about that. And, you know, trying to think about like, what what is next? What would the next step be in this? And um, uh, the company that I now work for, Fractured Atlas, because I was, you know, working in theater and using their tools already, I thought, you know, I could reach out to them and see if they had some sort of internship. And at the time, they were actually about to launch a software development fellowship to help artists, you know, learn how to code. And uh, so I got really lucky there, and I uh, did the fellowship, and that was my first introduction to, you know, web development. And uh, then was, you know, hired after that. Oh wow, what a really cool story! So tell me about New Sanctuary Coalition's work and its origins. Yeah. Um, so. New Sanctuary Coalition is fighting to end uh, the inhumane system of detentions and deportations in this country. Uh, and you know its origins, um, the catalyst, and this was in 2007, so I may miss some of the details, but as I understand it, there were several uh, families who were uh, had one member of their family who was at risk for immediate deportation. And at the same time, there was also this uh, coalition of, uh, interfaith coalition of religious uh, Uh, institutions in New York that was working together to provide a sanctuary so uh, for people to live in um, uh, as they were fighting you know immediate deportation and you know during uh, these several years uh, there was a huge kind of mobile community mobilization to halt the deportation of these um, individuals in the community and kind of building off of the momentum of that um, one of one of the member one of the fam- founding families, um, uh, Ravi Ragbir, who was fighting his deportation at the time, he you know grew grew out of the movement, the New Sanctuary Coalition, uh, which he leads as executive director today, because you know we saw how you know 
um, effective, this community mobilization and, you know, the person-to-person -person connection. Many of us feel very disconnected from immigration issues as citizens because it doesn't affect us directly, you know, but if you're sitting with someone um, or, uh, you know, hearing their story person-to-person, -person, then um, you can, you know, put your voice as a citizen forward to say, this person is my community, you can't take them. Interesting. So how did the 2016 United States elections affect NSC's workload? After the 2016 election, you know, we, uh, New Sanctuary Coalition has a couple of programs. The first is accompaniment, which um, allow, has volunteers accompany uh, undocumented people to their immigration hearings and check-ins. Um, another one is a pro se legal clinic, which is an in-person clinic um, where uh, immigrants are able to plan for and understand their immigration case. So uh, they often, this includes asylum applications or work authorization. They work in teams um, with trained volunteers that are kind of supervised by attorneys. So those were the two uh, programs that were, that really started to experience um, like exponential growth. So you know, we went from having like maybe one accompaniment every every week or every couple of weeks to having you know 10 accompaniments per week and um, like you know 30 30 volunteers um, accompanying uh, each week and then clinic which is an in-person event that takes place over uh, just a couple hours that that went from having you know four uh, people who are working on their um, their immigration case to having like 40 over a couple months and then you know 100 volunteers up from like 10 volunteers so um, it was it was a very it was a very sharp climb and it managing programs at those scales is just a completely different um, endeavor so we talk a lot about having to scale your applications and your website and in this case NSC really needed to scale up their operations so how did you personally get involved yeah, um, so I had been volunteering with them for about three years at that time, and I was in the pro se legal clinic, so I was seeing um, all of all of these issues that we were having with scaling, and um, I, you know, just started talking with with staff about, uh, you know, what what solutions um, we could we could come up with. So as I understand it, you started working on the scope of work needed for a possible Ruby on Rails application. So what were the MVP features that you felt that you needed to build? Um, well, we, we knew there was going to be three permission levels. We knew that there was admin, and there was um, accompaniment leaders, and then there was regular volunteers. Uh, we knew that you know we needed a place for like a digital record of all of the friends like case information uh, to track stuff and uh, so that that uh, was kind of the most complex aspect of it. We also needed like volunteers to be able to sign up for accompaniments um, and to have all of that tracked you know in with the friends record as well. Um, and we needed um, volunteers to be able to access a limited version of the record so that they could then upload documents at clinic uh, that they were that they were working on for the uh, friends case and I should say uh, friends is new sanctuary coalitions um, term for the community members who are impacted by uh, detention and deportation um, so they're not they're not our clients they're not people we're helping they are you know this is a person-to-person -person connection um, they are our friends and they are fighting uh, for their rights um, 
So, you know, of course, document upload, we also had to, you know, authenticate all the basic things that applications that have users have, authentication, um, and we also did a security review that was an important prerequisite. Oh, that makes sense. So it sounds like a lot of authentication, authorization, security, a lot of database work, and just making sure that the right access to data was available to the right people. Exactly. Yeah, oh, that's great. So it's uh, it, very important to build the right application. But of course, you know, when you're dealing with non-technical people, how did training and support factor into it? So training and support were definitely uh, critical to being able to use the application. Um, and there were kind of different um, different users. And uh, I had to kind of differentiate uh, what sort of training and support I was providing um, to each of the users. So there were volunteers. And you know, with volunteers, um, I did a recorded video demo of the kind of more limited functionality that they would have to you know, understand in order to be able to use it effectively and sent that out when we send them our user invitations. And I also sent a, a set up this uh, new sanctuary tech Gmail account so that they could just email me and I, you know, I would check it um, every, other, every couple days and get back to them and help them um, resolve some of the account issues. Uh, and I also, for, for a period of several months, I did, I was in person at the clinic, just, you know, because the, once there's like a critical mass of the like hundreds of uh, volunteers who are at clinic every week who know how to use the software, you're okay. But until you get to that point, um, the only, there's only one person who can answer the question and that's you. Uh, and, but even worse is if there's zero people who can answer the question, and then it means that, you know, the features aren't getting used. So um, that that aspect with volunteers was uh, was really critical and well worth the investment. And then with staff members, um, I do a lot more in-person training uh, because I want, in addition to you know, with the support aspect, I want them to feel like. You know, this is here to make their job easier. So if there are, we want to use that also to start a conversation about what things need to change in the software uh, for it to work better for them or adjustments that they can make and use the software for their job to be better. Uh, so I think there's a lot of value in doing those trainings in person um, to, and, and also because it can reveal areas of the software where they um, they might they might just not explore they might just not look in the drop down and they'll ask like can I have this feature and I'm like oh it's in the software it's right here so you know frequent touching in and trainings and refresher trainings um, have been really important for the software to be used effectively I've had experiences where users feel that if they go into the wrong area of the application that they think they're going to delete the entire database and yeah. just getting that safety and security and knowing that you've built in fail-safes that they can't destroy things kind mm -hmm. of helps lend to that. But the two scenarios I get really excited about is when someone needs help and you're about to answer but someone steps in front of you who's <laughs> another volunteer, let's say, and answers the question correctly or they answer, I don't know, but I know where to look. Mm -hmm. And that part gets me really excited because it's almost like that the, the ball is rolling now and it's taking a life on its own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I have to ask this because it is a Ruby on Rails <laughs> application and we love to dig into this kind of stuff. So what does the technical stack look like? 
Yeah, so it's Ruby on Rails. There's a little bit of JavaScript. I kind of intentionally wanted to keep it as simple as possible because uh, a lot of people work in Ruby on Rails. I want it to be really, I want it to be, I want to be able to get contributors um, and uh, for uh, beginner beginners uh, to be able to contribute as well. Um, so that was, and it's also like doesn't need um, the most advanced like technical stack as well. We can do it with Ruby and Rails and you know some JavaScript too. Awesome. So where do you host it? Do you have a CI that mm. runs against pull requests? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's on GitHub. Um, and we, oh, it's hosted on Heroku. Okay. Uh, we use AWS, too, um, for uh, documents. And um, we do use Circle CI as well. Oh, that's great. Yes. All the tests. Yes. So are there any gems or libraries that were crucial to your success? Yeah. Um, I love gems that, that make things easier. Uh, so, you know, we started out with like device, device invitable and device security because I was not going to re-implement authentication and like, you know, the, a lot of the security features in device security were, were great and device invitable, we're using a lot of that too. Um, some fun gems we found along the way. We originally kind of built some of the filtering search stuff by hand and that started to become unwieldy. And I found this great gem called Filterific. Um, so if you uh, don't like, if you don't have like super super customized search, you know, which it's we don't with this, like this gem is perfect because it builds all of it builds a lot of stuff, uh, makes it really easy um, to to get new like drop downs to filter from your fields, and then you just have like a, a, a query. So it's great. Um, we also. Uh, another engineer found a gem called Simple Calendar for us to use uh, for the accompaniment calendar, and it's really easy to implement, and it's a great calendar. Um, and you know, it seemed like it would, have, if I'd known about it at the beginning, it would have been even easier to implement than the like long list of unwieldy list of accompaniments um, that I wound up implementing, and the users would have been, you know, happier about it. So I myself graduated from a coding boot camp, and I originally learned to use Devise as authentication. And so mm -hmm. when I graduated, that was pretty much how I knew how to do authentication. And then the boot camp decided, well, we're going to teach people how to build it from scratch. Mm -hmm. And then what ended up happening is that graduates were building insecure authentication <laughs> systems. And so they decided to go back to Devise. And I agree with you. There are so many business problems that you're looking to tackle with this application, knowing when to use a library that is going to take things take care of things for you securely is definitely important i have used filterific it is fabulous yeah. i highly recommend that yeah. gem and then no one likes to deal with time zones i think that's just an understood thing yeah and so having a calendar gem that handles a lot of the timing and it, it's fantastic so i definitely recommend that gem as well so looking back on the overall project now that you have all mm -hmm. this hindsight <laughs> what would you do the same and or differently I mean, I think there are a lot of things I would do the same, so it's harder to pick out those. But for sure, um, I would not build features until they were needed, like yesterday, um, because uh, it's really it's really easy to when you're planning for uh, a program that they're going to start and they you know need uh, this new functionality to be able to do it to. Uh, overestimate how confident we are that the program is going to be run the way that they think it's going to be run before they actually run it and and that I the users are going to need what I think they need um, and so every time we've built features 
for stuff that they were planning to do but weren't hadn't been doing for a period of time. Uh, there's you know many more changes after the fact. So uh, now I try to kind of hold the line on that because you can also, you know, there's a lot of ways that you can work around and get a solution, even if it's not in, in your existing application or in software that they're using that's, you know, just good enough to, and flexible because it's like out of the box software or something like that, um, to accommodate uh, a program that, you know, could rapidly change as they're uh, developing it and seeing how it works. So that's my biggest. I think it's also easy for developers to um, get attached to like either a solution for a problem or like a language. They're just like, I, I see you have the vision and it could be so, it's gonna be so perfect um, without, uh, you know, taking a hard look at one, like is, is this solution like really, really necessary? Like I would maintain this for three years necessary? Do I know that in my heart? Um, and two, like, am I, am I picking this, you know, idea because there are aspects of it which I think are like really cool? Um, and, or is it really like, this is definitely the most practical solution? Um, because we do want to do cool things. It's we not do. a bad thing. It's just that um, when you're working on your own time um, and you're, you know, working with, uh, organizations who are probably not used to the software development process or what you know hammering out requirements or or even setting their own expectations of what things will happen it, it's I've just seen so many um, projects you know fall through the cracks and so much time invested in them um, but you know if you're invested in the community and you're really like taking the time to sit back and observe and see what they need and then just try to you know work with them more one-on-one -on -one versus the coding and make like the you know smallest change it could actually impact their you know work um, workflow in like a significantly positive way yeah so what you mentioned during your talk at abstractions which really struck home to me was that it's very difficult to get involved in a nonprofit open source project that you're not passionate about because mm -hmm. I mean it's one thing to drive by and contribute and then just kind of walk walk away, but it's another to take on that technical debt as your own, as a, as a personal thing that you feel that you're responsible for. Mm -hmm. And so it just sounds that you're incredibly passionate and really believe in the mission and values of this organization, yeah. and that's why you were so successful yeah. with it. So um, speaking of, how did you encourage other contributors to join you? Yeah, so I mean, the the reason that I feel passionately about it, I think, was largely because I became part of this community over time, and I, you know, uh, had a connection to the work that was formed over time as a volunteer in the accompaniment program. You know, waiting with people in 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 this situation where they are um, unsure whether they will be able to come back out, uh, which is is really you know unfathomable, uh, and you know. Part of the the you know goal of the accompaniment program is you have to you know see and expose like racist and unjust systems in order to um, you know take any further action to stop them. So you know once you see that and you have the person per person to person connection around those issues and you you work on on asylum um, cases uh, as well in, in as in a pro se legal clinic. Uh, 
you know, you're you're part of this community, and um, the it is your kind of responsibility as a, as with someone with the privilege of citizenship um, to you know oppose these you know unjust and racist uh, immigration system that we have in this country. So, I think what I want for contributors is for them to be able to you know, experience these aspects of community that I experienced and be able to connect to the work in a way that they um, feel that it's, you know, important for them to do this work, that there's a community depending on them, um, and that they're, you know, contributing and uh, in, to support um, and stand in solidarity with, you know, people who are fighting for their rights. So, um, uh, you know, long story short, uh, I think that, uh, we, we started like a, a monthly newsletter to keep people uh, up to date about what New Sanctuary Coalition was doing because I, uh, I you know, meet people who, you know, hear about the project and are interested in it and then they're able to, you know, maybe contribute at a hack event. But then I um, need to do more to keep them, keep them engaged. So, you know, one of the things is... Uh, uh, giving them an update on what New Sanctuary Coalition is doing. And, you know, we also have more structure now around contributing to the project. So within that monthly newsletter, we're also saying, you know, here's here's the plan for this month. These are the things that we're going to work on. These are the opportunities for you to contribute. Also, we have a monthly, like, virtual hack night. So they can come in person because, in you know, the in-person connection has always been really energizing for me and a lot of other uh, volunteers and, you know, work with us and be part of the community in that way. And, you know, my goal is to kind of through those over time um, and, and also through bringing people in in person to New Sanctuary Coalition when possible, uh, build people who you know, build up a community that has uh, is is part of a larger New Sanctuary Coalition community because they have this connection to the work, you know, they share the values, um, and they understand how their contributions are like actively working to support um, this community. And so I took a look at the GitHub project, and I thought it was really well documented. I thought the pull requests and the issues were really, really well formatted and well labeled. Mm -hmm. It just felt like a very welcoming place for someone to get in there. That's good. Yeah, writing GitHub issues is hard. I feel like that's probably as like an open source person, that's that's like the biggest, my biggest area of growth over the past. Um, two years or like year and a half. And that's so great to use an open source project to grow yourself as well. Yeah. I know that I've acquired many skills from just doing that kind of work as oh, opposed yeah. to my personal work. Yeah. So how can everyone get involved? So um, the open source repo <laughs> is uh, called New Sanctuary Asylum, and there's underscores under each of those new underscore sanctuary asylum. All in the show notes. Oh, fabulous. That's great. Um, and so there's contribute, like contributing details there, um, and you can you know reach out to me as well there. Um, and uh, yeah, you also New Sanctuary Coalition has a website, uh, newsanctuarynyc.org, so if you're interested in um, becoming part of that community and getting updates from them and um, supporting their work, you can uh, go there. Fabulous. Well, it was really great having you on the podcast today, and we thank you for the important work that you're doing. So how can listeners follow you? So I'm not on Twitter, but I encourage everyone to follow New Sanctuary Coalition on Twitter because you know they are uh, speaking daily about... Uh, it, it's really difficult to even keep track of um, all of the daily 
kind of assaults on immigrants in this country, especially as someone who you may not have to um, have to be keeping up with them, but uh, they uh, they do, and I think it's really uh, really good information to have. Uh, so you can follow them at New Sanctuary NYC on Twitter. How about our listeners who would like to follow you on GitHub? Oh, um, my GitHub is uh, C Z A G R O B E L N Y. Perfect. And again, we'll have that all linked up yeah. in the show notes. <laughs> Thanks again for being with us. Thank and you. listeners. Thanks so much for having me. You are welcome. And we will talk to you next week.